Welcome to the third episode of Who's Editing, a thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics, but the joke's on us because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, in fact, must use them. I'll let you in on all the rules, but first, let's welcome my guest with which to create a line of books based on Who's Who number three. You might have expected him later when a certain fiery-haired young hero came around, but he does have a personal connection with one character in Who's Who number three. And of course, uh, he co-hosts a podcast about Who's Who. Welcome to the show, The Irredeemable Shag. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I love the way you've redecorated our Who's Who studio. It's uh, it looks It's looking really nice. Thanks for coming in and camping in here without our permission. Yeah, I had to take down all those loose leaves. <laughs> You know, I have to say, uh, the, the first episode, I've listened to both episodes, by the way, so far too many times already in preparation for this, but the first episode has one of my favorite podcasting moments of all time, which is when <laughs> Ryan says how much going through this has made him appreciate what Rob and I do every episode for Who's Who and all the work that goes into it. It's all about you. Well, that's pretty much why I like it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm really excited to do this because uh, Cisco and I have been talking about this since the, the day the first episode dropped. Because he, he told us the premise, and I'm like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. It's just one of Cisco's crazy ideas. Then I heard the first episode. I'm like, oh, that's really fun. And that was over two months ago. So I have been getting ready for this now for two months. And I, I got to say, I think that's more planning that went into some New 52 titles. And that's that even lasts longer <laughs> than some of the New 52. So I feel like I'm actually really invested in some of these ideas. Is now that I've been living with them for a long time, so I'm excited. Well, when the uh, copyright laws lapse, you know, when the, when all these characters become uh, <laughs> public uh, domain, right. you can go ahead with your line of comics. Perfect. I I am camped and ready to go for brute. I can't wait. <laughs> well, this issue still has has a lot of challenges. It's got several African American characters, but only one female hero, so yeah. we have to deal with that. And no real premier Justice Leaguers. I mean, Black Lightning eventually became a premier Justice Leaguer, but it was, you know, way after this. So, yeah, there's there's not a lot of big hitters in this no, one. No, and three Legionnaires, and it's kind of awkward. And the same words recur a lot. The word black, the word blue, uh, the word brain. Yep. You know, if we want to keep it uh, diverse, we have to do, to do some work on our end. So in, in sitting back and looking at this, now I know you guys always talk about how you did your lineup. So did you – do you have a through line? Do you have a, a like one connective tissue for every character this time or not? Uh, well, this is what I kind of did. You know, it, there were relatively few usable entries as you say. I mean it, we'll only be talking about 15 books plus, plus our bonus book. So I decided – First and foremost, to put everyone in the contemporary era. Because okay. the issue has World War II characters. It's got a swashbuckler. It's got those three legionnaires. And they're all going to be present-day heroes and books. So instead of eras, I kind of wanted to expand the global scope of the DC universe with, uh, with more heroes operating outside the U.S. Hmm. Uh, and like maybe a second wave of books would lead to many of them teaming up as uh, as the Global Guardians or something. Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's looking forward if, let's say, my line of books exists for a while somehow. <laughs> that's a big hope based on these characters. Did you have a strategy? I, di I didn't really. I, I followed a different philosophy. I, as much as I pick on the New 52, there's some good ideas in there. And conceptually, the New 52 wasn't necessarily a bad idea to say, let's do – 
a whole line of books, and they can be completely different from each other, and that's okay. So I liked that strategy. So I actually, rather than trying to find a through line for everything, there's a lot of very diverse titles in here. In fact, I was really kind of surprised when I stepped back and looked at it. This is not a type of lineup of books that I would have expected from me. I mean, I'm usually traditionally love the bright, colored, superhero, action kind of let's go have fun, dynamic kind of stuff. And I have some of that, certainly. But I got quite a few like mature Vertigo kind of books in here. Mm. I was pretty surprised. Okay. And now – I did thread some together for a team, of course. But uh, in in my case, I know some uh, like like Chris made it. That was the if I remember right, the the entire DC universe was his line of books. And in mine, I just decided to go for like one fiefdom in the DC. I decided since there's no real big JLA characters in here, again excluding uh, Black Lightning, I, I said, you know what, I'm going to say the JLA exists. And Superman and Batman and all of them, they're over there under some other editor. You know, that's that's not me. And that editor damn well better ask my permission before he uses Brother Power the Geek in one of their books, I'm just saying. <laughs> you're a Mort Weisinger. You're not using my <laughs> You're not using my Superman. Exactly right. But yeah, it's interesting that you did that because in the first two episodes, Ryan and Chris both had like this is it, this is the DCU, and I took right. the other angle saying you know, it's just a line of books. I'm an overworked editor at DC, but I'm not the only one. Right. In this case, I'm not saying it's the entire DCU, my thing, but I feel like it is. It's like it's got no mention of anyone else. Wow. So, Out of the way, Wonder Woman. Here comes Black Orchid. Uh, it's interesting <laughs> you say that, but it's not It's not Black Orchid. So <laughs> okay. we'll get there. Uh, here one more time are the rules to each episode of Who's Editing? Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero, character, or team featured. We can give a villain or other entry their own series if we absolutely feel the need to. But we can only name a single villain or entry from the issue to receive that honor. Imagine we're coming back from some crisis or other so we can reboot characters. We can use any continuities version. It's really up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries. We will each be pitching our own ideas, so we'll end up with two possible lines of books, and you decide which books you actually want to read. In this case, like I said, we must include a minimum of 15 books in our line, which is a little on the low side. But but is that easier or harder, Shag? Um, I, for me, it was easier because there's a lot of like I, I looked at the villains and I thought, you know, I wonder, you know, just for fun, what can I do with the villains? And I'm looking at these, going, Black Rock, Black Star. Breathtaker. Yeah, I got nothing. So I <laughs> I think I'm kind of happy with the 15. Okay. Now, we got a new wrinkle this time, though. We're introducing a new idea, right? What do we call it? What's your favorite from the other guy's lineup is the question. Each of us will give our appreciation of the other's work and choose one series that we would read or maybe fold into our own line of books in a way. Pretty much I just brought that up to ensure that Cisco would actually listen to me instead of just cutting me off and moving on to the next character. <laughs> Uh, I'm pretty good about that, I think. I'm going to hand it off to you first, and we'll do a, a bit of back and forth in entry order, but we'll keep the one-team entry, in case we want to put some of our characters in there, and our bonus series to the end. Let us start at the beginning, page one of this book has Black Lightning. What did you have for this guy? All right. Well, for me, I decided uh, I wasn't going to do a reimagining with this character. I like this character quite a bit as he is. I'm just going to take him in a new, new direction. So what I did with uh, Jefferson Pierce here, the Black Lightning, is I said, you know what? Now he, he's been through his angry years. He's been through his vigilante years. Now he's going to decide to be, uh, and if I can steal a phrase from the Flash, he's going to be a paragon of hope. 
in in this world that my my fiefdom he's viewed almost like a superman kind of character but more down to earth think like chris evans captain america you know in the movies he's a regular guy who always chooses to to do the right thing and he just inspires people around him. He can't help it. And so that's kind of what I want my Black Lightning to be at this point in his life. He's very public, probably gotten rid of his secret identity, uh, and he spends most of his time you know, in, in like an urban or economically troubled area. Uh, one minute he might be working the food bank at the community center or building a kid's park in the inner city, and the next minute he's stopping a pawn shop from being robbed or steps up to the big leagues, and he's stopping Felix Faust from taking control of the world. I mean he's completely diverse. He's helping the little guys. He's helping at the global level. He is, uh, again, a paragon to everyone. I- I've also added kind of a-, a new thing to his powers. I like the idea of him being able to fly, sort of again like Superman, but by riding the lightning. So sort of like – remember Big Trouble in Little China? Uh, where the guys uh, in China, they would ride around. They would fly by holding on to the lightning bolts. They're standing upright, and they would hold the lightning bolt and fly around like it was a rope. I love that visual, so I think that would look great. And the preference for me, uh, the creative team, you absolutely need some diversity on this book. So, But you also need someone who can write and draw like larger-than-life, heroic sort of folks. So I was kind of leaning towards maybe like a Christopher Priest. You know, He's got a lot of great experience with Black Panther and uh, several other characters at being – you know. Paragons of Hope, if you will, uh, and, and Jamal Eigel, who just draws people amazing and does a great, great dynamic shots. And uh, I think I think that'd be a great mm. team. So and shades of Black Vulcan with the flight. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, his his legs don't turn into lightning bolts. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I was leaning more towards Superman flying. People love to look up and see him sort of heroic. Yeah, Black Vulcan but. is kind of like the Red Tornado of the Super right. Friends yeah. that way. He really is the Superman of my fiefdom. Mm. Superman's still out there, right. but this is my Superman. Well, I like that he's a veteran because I did the same thing. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I went a bit overboard. Uh, a lot of my books are going to star young heroes. So I wanted at least one grizzled veteran in the bunch, and Black Lightning is the the grizzledest. He was a street hero in the <laughs> 70s. Basically play that as if he started his career when this comic first started out. 50 years later, he's using his electrical powers to sometimes jumpstart his heart, but, <laughs> but he oh, has more vitality <laughs> than most men in their 70s. He's tired, but he's relentless. We just so rarely get older heroes outside of a team setting, or even in a team setting. You don't get seniors, except like the JSA, which, what does it mean to have better days behind you than in front? To have a fresh new crop of heroes around, and you're the last remaining member of the previous generation. And you know what? They all thought you're dead or retired. You know, every time a young hero meets them, it's like, oh, you're still alive? Aches and pains uh, and health scares. I think that speaks to, uh, like, one of the larger comics reading demographics. I was going to say, are you, are you looking at us in the mirror there, buddy, <laughs> as we get older? But also a hero who's an icon and a tradition in Suicide Slum where he still fights the good fight, uh, where the gangbangers respect him and he can keep the peace just by showing up. But, of course, as the series begins, there's a young Toby Whale, grandson of the original, back to reclaim oh, his territory. Right. Just as Jefferson Pierce is asked to become interim principal of the school he used to teach at, replacing a man gunned down in related events. That's what I'm doing with Black Lightning. It's a real contrast to the rest of the book. So I, it's odd to start with this. Is he like accepting of the new young heroes and shepherding them? Or, or is he more like, ah, get out of my way, you young whippersnapper? I think he's accepting. I think he is a mentor to, to those okay. who are ready to be mentored. But they're a little surprised that he's still around. He's... Like, he's not your father's superhero. He's, like, he's your great-grandfather's superhero at this point. I like it. Next up is Black Orchid. They did so little with her core concept that I really want, you know, the Black Orchid series to, to just return to that. Neil hmm. Gaiman turning her into a plant was a waste of the concept. 
Uh, she's an international woman of mystery. She's part Jane Bond, part the saint, part superhero. And maybe that superhero part is just a smokescreen. Like, none of the powers she exhibits are real. It's just another mm. disguise. I would base her in Europe with the capacity to go globetrotting when she needs to in a world of luxury and high-priced casinos, uh, sophisticated parties. She's a super spy who works for no one or potentially for anyone who needs help. The saint, the equalizer, you know, someone like that. I was just saying, that's what I was, I was trying to come up with the right sort of analogous uh, stingray, you know, yeah. whatever, right? So what would you do with Black Orchid? It's funny you, you like you poo pooed the Neil Gaiman plant stuff because mine leans really heavily okay. on that. I've got some I've got some retconning and reimagining, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to erase her previous stories. So in mine, she's still got the very mysterious background. There's still the plant powers. In this particular book, in my vision, it's going to be dark. It's going to be a darker book, maybe like a Justice League dark level dark, or maybe even Vertigo. I don't know. Probably more Justice League dark era. Anyway, very weird mystery vibe to the comic. So she's the hero in the book, but she's not always the protagonist. Sort of like in Sandman, sometimes the story would be about the supporting characters and they were the protagonists, and Black Orchid's adventure would just be happening in the background. She, again, still plant elemental powers. She's also got magic-based powers. Now, in my mind, there's some sort of establishing story arc that you, you do in the first four issues or whatever. Uh, I guess it has to be six nowadays. But anyway, and after that arc, Black Orchid realizes she's not who she really thinks she is. She discovers that she's been living these alternate lives for years, had no idea – Alternate memories, suffering from disassociative identity disorder, you know, formerly called uh, multiple personalities. So it turns out she finds out that at different times in her life, she lived as other women with plant powers. Uh, which one was the real her? At one point, she was Thorn, the, oh. the Green Lantern foe, the one who uh, fought uh, uh, Alan Scott. She was Mayflower from the Force of July. And the big shocker is you find out at like a big cliffhanger moment, she's Poison Ivy. She didn't even know she was. So then you, so you're, you're tying all these female plant characters together as being the same person. Then you get to the second story arc where we discover that now there's another woman running around who's claiming to be Poison Ivy. And you're, you're sitting there scratching your head going, wait, I thought Black Orchid was. So there's a big storyline trying to figure out which one's the real one. Is one of them a construct? Is, is she wrong? Was she never Poison Ivy? So there's just a, it's a way to allow Poison Ivy to still exist separately because she's so important in the bat community, but also have her tied to the, the Black Orchid mythology there. So for me, again, I, I like the darker sort of Vertigo uh, thought process here, and I leaned heavily on the Madame Xanadu series from Vertigo. I don't know if you ever read that or not, but it was fantastic, and it was written by Matt Wagner and with art by Amy Reader. And so that's – I would just poach that creative team and bring them back to do this book is what mm. I would do. I, I like it, even though I, you know, I'm, I'm against the plant elemental thing. It's like she's a perennial every time she blooms. <laughs> there you go. I like someone it. else. Okay. Next up is – Black Pirate. So, did you keep it in the in the 17th century or whatever, or did you modernize uh, 16th, it? 16th century. But yes, I absolutely did. This one is not a reimagining at all. Just it's a it's a new direction. This is another darker comic. Uh, this one's going to be mature readers. So I'm thinking uh, this is going to be a comic book version of a cable or HBO TV series. It's it's historical. You know, think Black Sails or think Vikings. We're talking combination of high drama, high adventure, action, political intrigue, violence, sex, betrayal, family, all this stuff. He's a – because if you read his story, 
it, it sounds sort of dry, sort of comic booky, but if you step back and think about what was really going on, him being a privateer in the 16th century, he's working for the British. He then betrays the British. He goes to work for the Spanish, and then he goes back to work for the British. I'm like, whoa, this this is an HBO series waiting to happen right here, man. You get someone like maybe uh, an Alex Nino back when he did that Captain Fear run that was so gorgeous. I mean, it doesn't. That's that's where my heart goes to because I love that. You know, he's very stylistic and dynamic and adventurous and being very illustrative. It doesn't have to be him. Maybe you get a more modern. Uh, uh, brash, you know, explosive artist to, who can keep up with, you know, the HBO styling. I don't know. As far as writer goes, I couldn't identify a specific writer. But I think at that point, you just go hire somebody from TV to do this one. Mm. So this is my HBO series. What about you, buddy? Well, it's set in the Caribbean, though obviously her ship can take her anywhere or, you know, elsewhere. Ah. I, I'm calling her Joan Valor. Uh, she is the latest in a long line of black pirates dating back to the 16th century. There hasn't been a female black pirate for a while. This is contemporary days. Like I said, all my series are going to be contemporary. But her dad had every confidence in her ability to keep the peace as a – she's like a privateer and a, a fighter for freedom in her corner of the world. So like this Caribbean and Latin America uh, would have all sorts of tiny island nations and banana republics run by supervillains and villainous organizations. Just like – well, Marvel had, did that with AIM. Uh, in the 2000s, like AIM Island or whatever, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of them have a connection with the Brotherhood, which I will expand upon later. But obviously, it's a mm-hmm. word taken from, from this comic. So Black Pirate is a young woman with a bright outlook, big shoes to fill, a crew that needs to adapt to her leadership style. And I think there's uh, certainly drama there. I also like the idea that we can go back and expand on the legacy of the Black Pirates like, I'm a big fan of what, what they've done with uh, Immortal Iron Fist, for example. Uh, Starman, of course. So th- that kind of legacy that you can you can take a break and tell stories that happened in the past to other versions of the character. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Like that. So what's she cruising around in? I mean, like a cabin cruiser or a, a sailing ship? Which, what is she using, if it's modern? Traditional day? galleon. So a oh, real wow. pirate ship. Obviously, it's got technology down below. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. but uh, it still looks like the classic black pirate ship, the pirate ship that her ancestors used. It's basically the same frame. So that has a history of its own, you know. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. I like that. I love the legacy part. I love the yeah, legacy and part. And we don't that. get a lot of pirate comics. It's gone out of style kind of thing. So, yeah. Yep. I like your uh, Dread Pirate Roberts sort of angle where it passes down to person yeah. to person. Black Racer. Okay. The- it's always tough to do the fourth world stuff, you know, just as one right, uh, yeah. <laughs> outside of the, the rest of the fourth world. And Black Racer is a particularly difficult character, I think. The actual title for me is, of this one is Death on Skis. That's what it's called. <laughs> so uh, Willie Walker is, in this case, he's an African-American champion skier. He had a terrible accident, uh, has since been paraplegic. And the series does look at that aspect. He's got strong family roots. He's going to college. He has to uh, change course after this accident. And this part of it will be well-researched, if not outright written by a disabled writer. I I know quite a few. And I don't mean in the comic book sphere. I mean in people I know personally. So Mm -hmm. I think I'd go there because whenever you talk to a disabled or differently abled person, the way that this is portrayed in media is totally wrong. Uh, you know, it's it's always it, it never makes sense. It's never rooted okay. grounded in reality. So I want that to, to actually make sense. Uh, when he sleeps, he merges with a kind of spirit of vengeance, like the specter, I guess, 
or really with death itself, and he's compelled to track down people that have cheated death. Like criminals hmm. uh, who have, uh, for example, sacrificed someone else, used innocence as shields, that kind of thing. So this is a horror-adjacent series with the racer figure going all over the world and even in space to mete out poetic justice. But it grounded in what some might consider real horror, that of finding yourself permanently maimed, as this happens to this character. But I think that second part of it, that's where you'll find hope, because it's most definitely not the end of life. And I think Willie will actually be more horrified by his dreamlike missions than his still difficult recovery and adaptation. So it's a complex series, I think, this one. It's interesting. I, I like – it seems like um, with the exception of maybe Black Lightning, almost every single character has been a complete reimagining for you. I, th- I find that kind of interesting to hear uh, the differences Yeah, we'll there. see where, We'll see if that holds up. Okay. <laughs> and, and you're right. Black Racer is a very difficult character to get a hold on. I've never been able even, – even in the peak of my like New Gods fandom, I still – this character is always like, what? So um, for me, it, I'm not going with a reimagining. I'm going with a, re- a new direction. But it's a pretty different direction. I'm kind of separating the Black Racer entity – with Willie Walker from the comics, so I'm saying, you know, because before he merged with them, that you know, Black Racer existed, was out there. So that's that's who I'm focusing on, the cosmic entity. This is another one of my Vertigo books. Uh, my plan here is this is a thinking man's comic, is what this is going to be. We're talking like Neil Gaiman level of philosophy, uh, where he's this primal force of the universe. The question is, when he's not out there collecting souls and being and you know, dealing with the fourth world nonsense, what's he doing? Well. He's contemplating his existence. He's interacting with other cosmic personifications of human concepts. Like he's he's a version of death, if you will, or the Grim Reaper or whatever, people's fear of death, however you want to see him. And he hangs out with other people, uh, other entities that are like the embodiment of birth or the, uh, the embodiment of anxiety or competition or greed or obsession or FOMO, you know, fear of missing <laughs> out or sexual climax, you know, any weird thing the humans fixate on. There is an entity that represents it, and he's hanging out, you know, having conversations, talking. Again, it's a thinking man's book. That's the goal for me there. And I'm thinking, you know, the writer needs to be, you know, like a clone of Neil Gaiman or a Peter Milligan, someone along those lines. And if you're going to get that kind of top writing talent, let's get some top-notch art. So I thought, all right, who does gorgeous, gorgeous characters? And I leaned into Steve Rude. Now, I know he's also great at dynamic-looking stuff, but he's also great at just showing people standing around talking. So uh, I, that's who I, that's the direction I went with this one. Very different. I'm surprised that you uh, didn't claim J.M. Demetrius for this because of the, the sort of philosophical bent it has. That is a very good uh, person I should have thought of. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. But no shade because I, I, I think like all my guests up to now have been very good at identifying creative teams where I've sucked. So. <laughs> <laughs> so I do appreciate that talent. At the end, I've got a whole list of artists that I wanted to work in here that I couldn't oh, fit. <laughs> there you go. Okay, our first Legionnaire is Block. I'm curious. I know you are. <laughs> I mean, we're both Legion fans. Did you keep these guys in the future? Or did you bring them to the past? Or what's what's up with these guys? All right, so there are three Legionnaires in this issue. And in each case, they're not my favorite Legionnaires. <laughs> Block, I don't have anything against Block. I love him sort of like the emotional core of the team to some extent, or the spiritual core. But I don't. there's no story I can point to other than his death uh, where I'm like, oh, that's Block to me. So, uh, But I did come up with – and I knew I was dealing this with you, so I had to step carefully. So here's what I did. I came up with, again, not a reimagining, just a new direction. 
So Bloch gets transported accidentally from the 30th century back to the 21st century. He's stuck here. And, uh, you know, Bloch has always been described as a, a – and this is a quote from a website – philosophical and meditative thinker who takes his time when forming opinions. Guess where I stole that from, Cisco? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so he's a thinker, right? So in this book, he is wide-eyed. He's trying to understand the 21st century and the way humans interact here. So he asks lots of big questions, and he makes you, the reader, think, why are we doing the things we do? Why do we fight when we could talk it out? Why do we hoard resources when we could share instead and everyone would benefit? Why is popularity or stardom more important to so many people than what's going on with your neighbors? So – I want him to be sort of a moral compass and look at us and go, why are you doing this so wrong? And make us question our behavior. So I want someone who can write, again, a thinking man's comic. And this, this one's not Vertigo. This one can be mainstream, and that's fine. But someone who can make us think about stuff uh, and sort of re-examine everyday life. And the, the person I, I settled on, I'm afraid it's a bit too on the nose, given this is Block, but I settled on Paul Chadwick, the man responsible for Concrete. When you read his comics, you think. Or maybe Tom Payer. I don't know if you ever read that Our Man series he did sure. that was so good. Another character who made you think so uh and eventually you'll like this part we're gonna get a crossover where he gets to see some of his former legion teammates and uh, i'll talk a little more about it later but i'll just tell you it's a crossover uh with the block title and the bouncing boy title and the crossover is called where the rubber meets the road (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and then after a year of this series being a critical darling you know everyone's gonna rave because you know again it's a it's it makes you think and realize how you could live your life better dc will declare that the sales aren't high enough it'll be taken away from me and given an entirely new creative team and new editor and direction and uh, it'll be universally generic and boring and be canceled within a year. It'll be uh, Kid Doomsday or whatever that book was. Oh, Lord. <laughs> it's interesting. I also thought of Paul Chadwick uh, as a direction. <gasps> okay. But then I, I put that away because I had another idea. So to Got me, it. it's, it's odd because these three Legionnaires are three of my favorites. But I reimagined them <laughs> almost oh, completely. Oh, snap! Because I wanted them to be contemporary heroes. So I, I'm saying oh, there okay. is no Legion. There is no 30th century, you know. So Block, first of all, I'm not taking Block's identity as a Dryadin away. Okay. But his people arrived on Earth centuries ago on a spaceship that the ancient peoples would have thought was just a big meteorite. They crashed in the Pacific Ocean on what is now Easter Island. So yes, <laughs> those big heads are Block's people. <laughs> but he was born here. And consequently, he was fashioned in the shape and size of a, an indigenous people, us, you know, as an emissary. Mm-hmm. So he's the Wonder Woman that comes to man's world, in a way. For Dryadans, life is very slow-paced. They're a bit like uh, like the Treants from Lord of the Rings, uh, mm-hmm. except they're worse. So it took them <laughs> this long to initiate first contact. So Block is is the somewhat naive teenager, which I I think fits his personality, but he fiercely refuses to call himself an alien. So it's like he's from Earth. Oh, okay, sure. And I think that there's like maybe, like come to think of it, like a generational metaphor, you know, a theme about your identity being legitimate no matter what the status quo would make you think. And as the Easter Island Dryadans make themselves known, there's a terrorist group financed by the Brotherhood, of course, that becomes a threat to them. And they call themselves the Blockbusters. That's how I... <laughs> oh, God. You leaned into all of this stuff, yeah, man. Yeah, and it's going to be a big part of Block's title. But it is about the young hero acting as an ambassador to, can't call it man's world, flesh world, or whatever it is. So that's what I'm right, doing with right. Block. Okay. All right. I, I really like the Easter Island aspect of that. I like that a lot. <laughs> I don't know. Some of these ideas I had, like the way I work with this, 
is that I go to sleep thinking about the issue of who's who, mm-hmm. which is not all that special for me. Uh, but then, yeah, it's, so some of these ideas are a bit, a bit of a like a dream diary in a way. Well, if you didn't take so much peyote before you go to bed, that's true. Then that's maybe true. This would make a little more sense. Well, you know, I'm a big Grant Morrison fan, so <laughs> I'm all about the peyote buttons. Not really. Uh, here's a character that I didn't change much. Good. Blue Beetle. Okay, Blue Beetle. You know, Spider-Man with a budget. I think there's little to change with Ted Cord personally. I, I might put Carl Kiesel on it as a writer, or perhaps as an artist, at least an inker. He's always shown like a proper sense of fun, and that's what I want from this book. Ted would operate out of Hub City, like in the Charlton comics. DC made that Chicago after Crisis, but I think it's more akin to Detroit. The way it was played, you know. So a sort of failing industrial city and Ted's civilian life is about keeping the town's economy alive, rallying other captains of industry, that kind of thing. He's a hmm. technical and a social innovator, in other words. Uh, but it's all an uphill battle. My only other ask is that the squid, which was the organization or villain he fought in his first Charlton issue uh, and never brought to life in a DC book, would be the main threat of the series, a kind of corporate hydra with its tentacles and everything, and also <laughs> henchmen with suction cups on their arms. <laughs> <laughs> I demand, since it's from the 60s, though, the squid be an acronym, though, for some, some evil organization. <laughs> mm, we, that, that can happen. That can happen. <laughs> so is your Blue Beetle Ted Cord? It doesn't even have to be, right? Are, you have several... Oh, it absolutely is, okay. is Ted Cord. <laughs> oh, there's no way it wasn't going to be. <laughs> this is also not a reimagining. Um, it's... I, I, it's I want to say it's a new direction, but it's not entirely. It is sort of like what you did, just reframing his original core concept. Uh, I was going to go blue and gold, right, originally. Because even because you know, if this series had been published a couple years later, Booster Gold would have been in this issue as well. So I was like, all right, yeah, I thought blue and gold. But you know what? My, uh, my Bwahaha blue character is coming up next. <laughs> so instead... I'm going more traditional. As you said it. This is our Spider-Man. That's who this character is for me. You know, Ted Cord, he's got Cord Industries. He's a brilliant scientist. He's a gadgeteer, super rich, corporate. He's, you know, he's funny, very clever. He's like a fun Tony Stark, basically, is what he really is, at least the Tony Stark from the movies, except instead of a suit of armor, he uses gadgets. So as Blue Beetle, you know, you think fun, bombastic Spider-Man type of adventures, lots of acrobatics, lots of line swinging, lots of funny quips. Uh, I just threw this in there because I couldn't resist. He fights Bug and Bite, who have now been uh, relabeled Malware and Terrorbite. I, uh, I love that concept. I, you know, instead of Terabyte, Terrorbite. <laughs> I, I, I know. It's such a dumb joke, but I love it. So here's the thing. This book already existed, believe it or not. And, and Dan Slott, who wrote Spider-Man for years, right? And he, he's, he's really well known for writing Superior Spider-Man. And if you haven't read it, you've probably at least heard about it, okay? Well, the run after Superior Spider-Man is not as much beloved. And what it was in that run, Peter Parker was super rich. He had started Parker Industries, which was basically like Apple, but it was being run by Peter Parker instead. You know, everyone had, instead of an iPhone, they had a Parker Industries phone, the whole world sort of like that. And he still maintained the identity of Spider-Man, but he had lots of gadgets, kind of almost like the suit he has in um, the Spider-Man movies where it's, you know, it's got all kinds of different webbing and stuff like that, had all these gadgets. Here's the thing. It was the right idea. It was the wrong character because Peter Parker doesn't work as a corporate mogul head of a giant company, but Ted Kord does. And if it, the more I think about that run of Spider-Man, if I just slot Ted Kord in there and you, know, you got to change the villains, of course, it's perfect. So I don't even want to mess with the creative team. I want Dan Slott writing it and I want those artists. Uh, their names are Jim Chung and uh, – oh, I'm going to slaughter this. Giuseppe Kemencoli? Ooh, I messed that up. Anyway, uh, that run – 
it was gorgeous. It was slick. Again, the, the, the character of Peter Parker wasn't right for Peter Parker, but it was perfect for Ted Gord. I want a funny guy swinging around with all kinds of gadgets who's just bombastic and bigger than life. As much as I love Len Wein and Paris Collins, the, the Blue Beetle series we got in the 80s wasn't that. It wasn't enough of that, and, and that's what we really need. Wow. Yeah, I, I read that those Spider-Man comics. I loved all, everything Dan Slott did. Including that period of it. At least, you know, it was okay. I mean, it was an interesting take, and I think towards the end, it was all going to fall apart. Whatever Peter Parker does, <laughs> it's, it's right. going to fall apart. So it was, uh, you know, an interesting take on it. Uh, but I completely agree. It was really Ted Cord as Spider Man. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, here, let's put a little fanfare. I think we need a little music. <laughs> Because I, for sure, thought this entire episode would be Blue Devil and the Blue Devils, you know? <laughs> I thought, okay, it's like he's going to write in Blue Devil in every series. I've got a better plan than that. Don't okay, worry. Okay, <laughs> well, you know, Black Lightning is the Superman of your line. If Blue Beetle is the Spider-Man of your line, Blue Devil is the – well, I'm guessing he's the Blue Devil of your line. <laughs> He is the blue devil of my line, but he is the tentpole character of this whole thing, folks. Okay. I mean, not really. The rest, the rest of it is not built around him, but he is the single most popular character in my fiefdom, right? So, I mean, well, Spider-Man, obviously, I, I based Blue Beetle's personality off Spider-Man. I would say this blue version of Blue Devil has the popularity of Spider-Man. This Blue Devil becomes a household name in the real world where everyone's talking about him, right? Not a reimagining, just going back to basics. And he's my bwahaha character of this universe. He's you know, wildly popular. He's funny. He's v- adventurous. It, it's not a hard idea. You just return him to what worked, his original premise. Go back to the first six issues of Blue Devil, you know? He is a likable stuntman who's magically fused inside this powerful suit, and he's got a magic trident. He's a reluctant hero and throwing crazy antics, and it works. He's got an incredibly strong supporting cast, his girlfriend Sharon, his best friend cameraman Norm, his boss Marla Bloom, his sidekick Gopher, and his jerkwad friend Wayne Tarrant, some antagonistic movie studio executive because, you know, he's making movies all the time. You just go back to the core of what worked for the character. You get Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn back on the book and their sense of humor. You get Paris Collins drawing it. I realize they're all different people now, but I don't care. I can pick and choose. I'm, I'm playing God here, right? So the key is you just make it fun. You get involved with ridiculous, outlandish, over-the-top plots. But as long as you make it adventurous and funny, people just go with it. You know, and if Paris has to take a month off or something, make sure the art stays top-notch. That's where they had a problem in the original series. Uh, you know, get like a, I don't know, a Chuck Patton or someone like that, you know? It's just got to be fun. Now, here's the part where I said, yes, I didn't thread Blue Devil through every single series. I didn't mean to, Siskoid, because I'm breaking the rules. I'm a lawbreaker. (laughs) Blue Devil doesn't just get one series, Siskoid. I'm sorry. He also gets Blue Devil, the weirdness magnet which is, is his second series, sort of like, you know, there was Spectacular Spider-Man or Man of Steel. That one focuses on his supernatural stuff, you know, Shadow Pack style. Then you get Blue Devil Team-Up. Then you get Blue Devil Brave and the Bwahaha, which is the second Team-Up book. You get Blue Devil Adventures, which is based on the animated series. You get Kid Devil, the sidekick. He gets his own miniseries. Then you get the Stupendous Stuntmen miniseries with Blue Devil, Animal Man, Trickster, and another character. And I realize by the rules, none of those count, but I don't care. I'm still going to do them. So it is Blue Devil and the Blue Devils. Yes, pretty much. Well, it's blue, it's, it's him. There's only one of him, but he's everywhere. <laughs> sort of like Spider-Man is. It's interesting because I also put Buddy Baker in the mix. Ah. Yeah. Well, I, Blue Devil for me is one of those characters that I see very little reason to change. So I agree with your approach. 
up to the point where, you know, you, you started um, putting too much of him on the racks. <laughs> no, but he looks cool. He's fun. His adventures tend to be kind of weird. So I like that. Uh, I like the Hollywood backdrop. Uh, which mm-hmm. actually should be easier to write and understand now because we're more aware of all that behind-the-scenes stuff than we were in the 80s. And there's superhero movies, and I mean, so he would work on those films. Uh, and I take a page from a weird late-night series that was called G versus E. I don't expect anyone to remember this. But they started off as good versus evil, right? Right. That had a guy living on borrowed yeah. time, having to find and often get rid of corrupt Hollywood people who owed their, their success to demonic contracts. They might have powers, etc. But like that show, that aspect would be played for satire. I would also build up that stuntman community, like adding Animal Man, or just Buddy Baker at least, to that mix. But I agree with you. There was already a very good, support, like, memorable supporting cast in that book. And, uh, like, I think, like, all the Nebiros stuff has been done. That's, yeah. That story's been done. Like, let's not go back there. But the rest of it, the concept as, as a pure concept, as a pure hero, you can just sail ahead with that. Exactly. And I don't even, I don't think you even have to retcon away no. the, the shadow pack stuff. You just say it happened and we're moving forward. And I wouldn't change the, like I, I keep like the original look. I don't think mm-hmm. they didn't better it with the, the later looks. I mean, the shadow pack look, looks great. And I think that would be fine when he's off duty, but yeah, put him back in the original togs. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, okay. Bouncing Boy is next. I am dying to hear what you did with this one. <laughs> well, so I don't know if this will resonate with you, but in the reboot era of the Legion, they mm-hmm. didn't give Chuck Tane powers, uh, but instead they made him like a super engineer in the Legion support staff. And at one point, mm-hmm. he built a ship called the Bouncing Boy. Okay, okay, so, <laughs> okay. so now, and I don't expect you to have seen the second Pacific Rim movie, okay? But I, but I saw the first one. Well, <laughs> I did think the second one was more fun than the original, which is a hill I'm totally happy to die on. Don't at me, bros. <laughs> in that movie, there's a girl who builds this small mech that can turn into a ball and roll around. So you see where this is going. In my series, okay. we have an Asian-American Chuck Tam, which is a name uh, from uh, that uh. I, I've taken from a childhood friend of mine. He's built a giant but not too giant, drivable robot called Bouncing Boy. It can turn into a ball that can roll, obviously, but also bounce. The series would hark back to all those <laughs> great giant robot anime series we watch as kids. Here in Canada, like there's nothing bigger than uh, Goldorak, uh, which in Japan was UFO Robot Grandizer, which I realize everybody says, oh, that's a minor series. But here in Canada, or in the French-speaking world, because I know France had, had it as well, it was like nobody's not seen it. Okay, But, you know, Voltron, Transformers, whatever you want. Cool designs, fun action, and from time to time, we melt one of your favorite characters and make you cry. So, mm. like a real, like real anime style action adventure with robots. Wow, I did not see that coming at all. I mean, it's two Legion characters you've reimagined. In fact, the only character you haven't reimagined so far is Blue Devil. A blue, blue Beetle <laughs> and Blue Devil, the Blues. Oh, okay, Blue. That's right. That's right. All right, the Blues Brothers did well. <laughs> but what did you do with Bouncing Boy? So, all right, I. I really, really, really love this concept. So if you don't, just lie to me. Not a reimagining, again, just a new direction. So this is my emotional comic. This is a, it's a dramedy, uh, if you remember that phrase from the the 80s. In fact, do you remember the show 30-something? I don't know if anyone, 
Yeah, I mean, Good versus Evil is a deep cut. I don't know, 30 something might be nowadays too. But anyway, this is the comic that's going to make you laugh, it's going to make you cry, and it's going to make your heart swell with love. Uh, the core of this whole book is the romance between Bouncing Boy and his wife, Duo Damsel. They are sort of a 30th century Lois and Clark. Not the superhero side of it, but meaning that you care more about their relationship than you do about the superheroics in the, in the comic. Uh, they're older, they're in their 30s, and they're running the Legion Academy. It's almost sort of like 5YL-ish. You know, sort of that time frame. Uh, he's got the beard. They're running Legion Academy. Anyway, uh, and they're both dealing with their own midlife crisis. Uh, Bouncing Boy, you know, we, us nerds, we always think of uh, him as like the nerd that got the girl, right? I mean, here he is, this, you know, overweight uh, loser, if you lovable loser who's got, you know, hot, sexy twins. Oh, my gosh. But here he feels like his best years are behind him that his powers were never good enough for the Legion. And does he even deserve to have this amazing wife like Duo Damsel? So he, uh, throughout all this, he's also struggling to control the trainees at the, uh, the academy. And he just feels like his life's out of control. Then we go over to Duo Damsel. You know, again, she's awesome. And she can be sexy twins, right? We always think that's awesome. But here, she is very quietly to herself suffering. She's grieving the loss of her third persona when she was triplicate girl and sort of like the way a mother uh, mourns the loss of a child in, in that almost aspect. And then when she splits into two, her and her you know, twin sister, they don't get along anymore and they don't see eye to eye on anything. And so she's really battling depression. So throughout this, again, they're both going through midlife crisis and, and, the, and so they're going through emotions that everyone faces as they get older. But the core of the book, again, it comes back to the strength of their marriage and their relationship and how much they're there for each other. So while each other's hurting, they've always got each other's back and, and you feel that love. And then, so you feel the hurt and you're sad. But by the end of each story arc, you feel the, the uplift of them, the, the relationship. And here's where you, because it's a comic, you got to have some fun. So you have the supporting characters are these kooky trainees, right? At the Legion Academy. So they're always getting into weird situational antics, which is fun and gives you a good laugh. And in fact, there's one adventure where the kooky trainees get caught up in a time travel plot and they're thrust back to the 21st century. Bouncing Boy follows to rescue them. And that's where you get your crossover with Block, where the rubber meets the road. Now for the writer, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I was kind of leaning towards like a Terry Moore from Strangers in Paradise, you know, someone that can really tell an emotional talking head comic, one that makes you care and laugh and everything. And then for an artist, I picked Luke Dobb because I don't know. I, I mean, I doubt he'd want to do an ongoing series or whatever, but he is a master at drawing two people joyfully and happily in love. And he can also draw people dealing with real hardship. And uh, his art's just gorgeous. So that's 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 my vision for the yeah. book. I know it's, it wouldn't fit the, the book, but I'm looking right now at all the Legion cards he's made. I have it like a 15-card mm. set. So like the, the Legionnaires are much younger in this than, than what you propose. But yeah, sure. Why not? Let's give Luke some work. Why not? He's, yeah, exactly. he's a friend. And I just, I just love the idea of these people in their 30s, you know, dealing with hardship, but it's, but it's surrounded with love. I like the setting because it's like they're working at a school. Yeah, very and much. You've got like that school drama. You can easily see this as like a TV series, for example. Okay, let's jump right to the next Legionnaire then. Brainiac 5. Here we go. This is a reimagining. Not dramatically differently, but reimagining as a kid-friendly book by Franco and Baltazar, cool. uh, of course. You know, everyone loves to make them their, their go-tos, right? But this one's called Growing Up Brainiac. And in it, Brainiac 5, basically in the Tiny Titan setting, very purposefully, right? It's the 30th century, and the original villainous Brainiac is still alive as this cantankerous geriatric grandfather that lives with him. And, he's always, and, and the grandfather's always trying to take over the world, and Brainiac 5 always stops him. 
in a very Saturday morning kind of silly way. Think uh, sort of pinky in the brain level of villainy. And uh, the real key word here is adorbs. That's what this series is. It's just adorable. Not a big pitch. No, no, but it's a good pitch. Also, it kind of sounds like a pitch that I've got coming up. Uh Uh-oh. Well, remember the name growing up Brainiac. It's going to come up again later. Okay, cool. For me, it's just called Brainiac, the series. Okay. This Brainy is a female Kaluan. I really changed Uh, the genders on a lot of these characters. Like Brainiac 4. Brainiac 4 was supposedly a woman, or like Brainiac 5's mother. Oh, okay. This Brainiac 4 is a teenager, too smart for her own good. And if you're reading this, you'll probably have to read Brute 2. These are, <laughs> oh, gosh. These are connected books. Uh, here's why. Out there in space, Ms. Dox has an argument with a contrarian from Shangri-Lin nicknamed Brute as to which can do the most good, brains or brawn. So s- settle this bet. They travel to a backwater world called Earth to settle the matter. Each book follows thematically linked adventures. Maybe it's the same writer on both. Maybe it's two dueling writers under the same editor. But in Brainiac's case, her solutions are intellectual. But will she cause more problems for herself by taking the indirect route and playing the long game? We'll get back to this when we talk about Brute. Interesting. Okay. Hmm. Now, the thing that you were talking about with uh, geriatric... Brainiac is sort of what I'm doing with Brainwave Jr. In this case, I've taken a page really from James Robinson's Starman, but the the Brainwave series should be funnier than that. Hank (laughs) King Jr. is pretty much as you see him here in in the who's who, but he's only just reconnected with his father, the original Brainwave, who, yes, still looks like that with the big head and all that. Right. He's done his time. He's retired from supervillainy, and he's trying to make amends to be a father to his son for the first time and guide him in his life as a superhero with the powers he genetically inherited from him. But all of dad's instincts are villainous, which should lead to some hilarity. You know, parents just don't understand, but (laughs) at an extreme level. (laughs) And if you want to get an underlying message about Earth-destroying boomers, parenting, echo-minded millennials, well, so be it. I'm just now thinking of it. (laughs) Oh, wow. uh, But maybe, just maybe, a tiger can't change its stripes, and the series will lead Junior to discover his dad's been getting back into the game on the sly. So there is like a longer arc to this. It's It starts as a comedy, and it's mostly inspired by Frogman, I gotta say. That, that was the relationship, <laughs> Frogman and Leapfrog. Okay, right. But, right. you know, as the, as the series moves on, we can change that premise, and maybe it gets a little darker and a little more... But at the same time, I, I almost want to end that darker arc with a, a Family Matters moment with the violins at the end or something. You know, oh, Let's geez. learn a lesson okay. and, and kind of laugh at that format. But that's what I would do at Brainwave Jr. The comics is just called Brainwave, of course. Gotcha. For me, all right, remember, we had Growing Up Brainiac, right? Right. By Franco and Balthazar, which, by the way, becomes an enormous hit, right? Like, of massive course. hit. Everyone loves it because it's so cute. So – After a short period of time of the success of growing up Brainiac, DC decides to have another series as sort of a reaction to that. So this one's a big reimagining. As a reaction to growing up Brainiac, we get a new title called Growing Up Brainwave. And this is sort of the antithesis of that book. This is very much a mature Vertigo. Uh, it starts off as a miniseries, but then gets uh, greenlit for an ongoing because it's so good. We're talking Tom King writing his, you know, really dark, dark, dark stuff here. I picked for art uh, like a Duncan Fregretto, like when he was doing Enigma, or a Lenil Yu who drew Secret Invasion. Just looking for real dynamic pseudo-realism and, and creepy. And the story is very, very dark and very, very disturbing. We're talking kind of a mommy dearest sort of way. So there's echoes of this legacy idea you had from yours 
but I'm taking it to a dark place. And the, and the deal is, Brainwave Sr. has verbally, physically, and even psionically abused his son. And uh, unfortunately, like many real-life abusers, the father thought he was doing what was best. So the story is about Brainwave Jr. coming out of that situation as he's trying to adjust to his own adult life and making his own decisions and how the specter of his father and the abuse that he suffered has colored his whole view of the world. And he's trying to overcome the emotional damage and build a life for himself. And he's also trying to resist the urge to use his own mind control powers for uh, for evil ways because it would be so much easier to just use his powers to manipulate people to get what he wants, right? But he doesn't want to go down that path. So it's a real struggle for him. And, you know, maybe sometimes he stumbles. Dark, dark, mommy dearest kind of book. <laughs> but that, that's where my brain I, – I love sort of the dichotomy of growing up Brainiac and then growing up Brainwave. I love that kind of the, how opposite they are. Yeah, you sold a comic to little kids and then came out with a companion <laughs> book that they cannot read. <laughs> you know what? That's what the Joker movie was. Thank you very, very much. Good. In fact, I was in Walmart yesterday, and they had a giant display that obviously had been up for a few months, Joker Pranks for Kids. Really? The same time the movie comes out, you're putting that out? That's I'm just it's the same kind of marketing philosophy I'm using. <laughs> uh, let's move over to the Bronze Tiger. What are you going to do with Bronze Tiger? It's still Ben Turner. He's still a martial arts extraordinaire. He's still trained with Sensei and, and Richard Dragon, and he was even brainwashed into being a bad guy. However, this is where we deviate a bit from the existing history. He comes back from being a bad guy, but he's damaged. He's damaged goods, and now he's always on the edge. You know, now he's doing uh, sort of like uh, Braun Steiger did. He's doing black ops missions for the government, but he's always on the verge of turning savage. Think Wolverine style savage, just not without the claws with his fists. And his and, and part of his struggle is his actions are always at odds with his own spirituality because, you know, he he had a very deep spiritual belief there. And uh, so he's a very conflicted character. He, he can't stop himself from what he's doing, but he feels horribly remorseful for it. So the whole style of the book is very military, covert, you know, bloody sort of drama stuff. My go-to here, I, I don't know a lot of military comics. You know, my ideal would be to pick some diversity here, but I, I couldn't nail anyone down. So I ended up picking a creative team. There was a Deathstroke series that came out in the New 52. It was before Rob Liefeld took over the book and crapped all over it. Uh, before he did, there was a good team on there. Uh, uh, Kyle Higgins and uh, Joe Bennett did a really dark, not dark, but did a really great um, sort of espionage, you know, military uh, mercenary book that I really enjoyed. And I just feel like that, that would be a good team on Bronsteiger. Okay. Yeah. Mine is set principally in Asia. I need heroes all over the place, right? For your global guardians. <laughs> Bronsteiger is about a martial artist hero on the road looking for his long-vanished master so he can learn a new technique needed to defeat a big bad who almost kills him in issue one. Classic Kung Fu story. I want to lean hard into the genre, making it a loving tribute to Shaw Brothers classics, Golden Harvest schlock, Crouching Tiger style wuxia, black exploitation connections like Black Belt Jones and Black Dynamite. Uh, I dare say I could write this one myself. I've got the pop culture yes. cred for this, but I might go to writer artist uh, Kagan McLeod, who's shown a head and a passion for this kind of material with the totally awesome Infinite Kung Fu graphic novel published uh, by Top Shelf. It is so good. I so recommend it. Most importantly, he knows how to choreograph martial arts on the page which is mm. an art unto itself. It's uh, it's actually amazing the way he does it to make it feel like those kung fu movies. I love that you went that direction because I, I mine barely pays uh, you know attention to the martial. I mean, obviously it's a core of my book, but I, you really went there with the martial arts, and I love that. That sounds really yeah. Cool. We don't get enough of that uh, because it is hard to do. 
Yeah, right, to yeah. not make it feel like they're just punching and kicking and like every other comic book. Okay, Brute. <laughs> Good well, luck. Well, <laughs> I mean, Brute was, you know, I, I always ask my guests, what was the hardest nut to crack? Brute. For me, it was Brute. Or it was going to be Brute. And then, basically, it fell into place when I decided what to do with Brainiac. The other side of the Brainiac story, in other words. Brute is a hulking monster with a direct... Some would say thoughtless approach to doing good. So these twin series are looking to explore a different dichotomy than we're used to. It's not liberal versus conservative or young versus old or even good versus evil, but it's rather it's action versus thought with both characters in their own books making big mistakes along the way. I have only one request and it's that Sean McManus or someone with a similar style do the series because mm. I love Brute's face. I've always loved his face from this Who's Who <laughs> entry. But it's okay. so rarely been well done by other artists. It looks like a frog. Like there's like echoes of frog. I like to me it. In. It's a gray frog. <laughs> so basically, if you read Brute, and it's like Hawk and Dove, but they're in separate books, you know. But it's it's mm-hmm. one would be like okay, when when something needs to be done, I do it. You know, direct action. And the other one is all circular cute. You know, it's it's all like plots within plots within plots, going after the same things, but. Each in their different way. So I want to explore that idea in comic book form. That This is my philosophical book, <laughs> Brute and Brainiac, those two books. Interesting. Okay. And I, again, I, I'm noticing this major trend of you're reimagining so many characters, and I'm trying to stick to the existing characters. It's just interesting how opposite approach we take. For me, there's a big problem with, okay, this is an Omega Man out of context. This is right. a Legionnaire out of context. This is a fourth world character out of context. So I rebuilt the context around them. Whereas headliners like Blue Beetle and Blue Devil, well, they're not divorced from their context. You can use them whole. And that's kind of where I went with this. There are so many team players that are now alone. So how do you do them as a solo series was my challenge. That's a very interesting perspective. I mean, if that's what you tell to rationalize yourself for your lack of creativity, that's fine. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Speaking of lack of creativity, yeah, I really struggle with Brute. Big time. So here again, I didn't reimagine. I just want to do it right. I want to do the I want to do the Omega Men correctly rather than reinvent the wheel. So I'm thinking, you know, take a splash of Guardians of the Galaxy, because that's very similar. Take a splash of that. Take a splash of Adam Strange Planet Heist, which featured the Omega Men, and that was the first time I've ever been interested in the Omega Men was in that book. And that's what you go for. High octane, sweeping epic space tales. You know, don't get mired in political nonsense, just galaxy hopping, intergalactic war. You know, it's funny when you and I were communicating, you, you made the joke, I am brute. And uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't say anything about it, but I was like, wow, it's my I, I, he's not like that. He's like he is here in the description. But it, that's my Guardians of the Galaxy book right here. Now, the character himself does pretend to prefer peace, peaceful options. So in this one, he's sort of I, I, I said he's going to be the one who comes up with the clever nonviolent solutions. So in, in the book, a very uncleverly named Brute and the Omega Men. But again, you, you get an Abnett and Lanning, and yes, I know they broke up, but you get those kind of guys who can do that sort of thing. You get the art team from Planet Heist. You get Pascal Ferry or maybe um, – and I can never say this name right. You always correct me. Uh, Oliver Copiel. I, I can't say it, but – it's Olivier Coipel, I guess. I think he's French. You get those kind of art teams on this thing, so it's got to look gorgeous, and it's got to be galaxy hopping and really spectacular and bold. That's that's the only way to make this work for me. Still has sort of a team book with Brute right in the 
at the front. Only because he's the one in this book. <laughs> yeah. Again, it wasn't terribly creative. It's just do Omega Man. Just do it right is kind of my okay. take on it. What did you do with Brother Power the Geek? Okay. Uh, that one's, uh, I think, dated would be the word. This one got a complete reimagining. And this is one of my favorite ideas in the whole thing that I've got here. So so don't be mean. Be gentle with me. All right. So uh, I'm, I'm even switching the name out. It's not going to be Brother Power the Geek. It's Sister Power, Beauty and the Geek. Oh. So this this is the superhero Patty Duke show, or for more modern-day audiences, Live and Maddie, which is a story of two identical twin young girls. Both girls, identical in appearance, physical appearance, but their style, their taste, their hair, their attitudes, all that, and even their superpowers are nearly opposite, which is responsible for some of the comedy and some of the adventures and the plots. Um, the girls could be any nationality. You know, I was thinking either African-American or Japanese, Hispanic. I don't know. Any, any of it would work. It's fine. Uh, but definitely go for some sort of diversity here because my line of books really needs more diversity. You've done a much better job uh, flipping genders and stuff and, and, and reaching out. But anyway, so this is sort of a mid-level teen hero book. So the kind these are the kind of characters that might end up in like a Young Justice or maybe even a Young Teen Titans. And for a creative team, you need a delicate balance of an adventure book, but also someone who understands sort of kids' motivations. So I went right to David Gallagher and Steve Ellis from The Only Living Boy, you know, uh, or Only Living Girl as well. And if they're busy picking up their Eisner Awards, then uh, then you go over to Mark Wade and Humberto Ramos, who did uh, the Champions Run, which was a Marvel teen book recently. And, and that's that's the kind of the vibe I was going for. I, I love it. It's Sister Power, Beauty and the Geek. I can't help but love this. <laughs> well, I hope you like mine as well. My first in- instinct was really to dissociate it from the hippie thing, of course. Yes. And from that doll elemental stuff that they tried in the Vertigo one-shot. Right, uh, right. So in my notes, I'm looking at my, my little uh, binder here, and it says, the first thing I put was, Wayne's World with superheroes? Question, question mark? Oh, my gosh. It's not quite that. <laughs> but since Joe Simon created Brother Power, you know, a lot has changed, including the meaning of the word geek. Yeah, so true. So this is totally just called The Geek, and the character is never called Brother Power or anything. And it's about a card-carrying pop culture superfan. He lives in the DCU, so instead of getting selfies with celebrities that play superheroes, he tracks down the superheroes themselves. And, and I think that where the Wayne's World reference comes in, I think, is a lot more about talking to camera, changing the ending of a story, being meta, spoofing <laughs> comics-related media, you know, somewhere between Ambush Bug, Dork, and Jimmy Olsen. So when he meets uh, Black Lightning, is he, we're not! Worthy, we're not worthy. Could be that kind of humor, uh, with a touch of Marvels, you know, just where the su- the superheroes oh, okay. are in the background, but you're, we're using the geek to explore fan culture in a world where the weird science fiction fantasy stuff is real. Fun, I like it. I like it. You, uh, you've got another challenging one coming up. Interested to see where you go with this one. I, I, I didn't feel it was very challenging. Really, Buena Beast as the one. I gave each corner of the world its own hero. And Buena Beast is Africa's. I think mm-hmm. it's an amazing continent with hundreds of cultures, many beautiful environments, mm-hmm. a lot of real-life drama. Uh, I've de- decided to let the character be white, but that will be offset by people thinking he's a little ridiculous and smirking at his white messiah complex and actually discussing colonial tropes through that. Oh, okay. So hitting it, hitting the racist – because there's some racist stuff going on here. So you hit right. it right on the head then. Okay, interesting. He's not going to be a racist character – and I realized that the word Buana has – it means master. So his name is Beastmaster. That's what the name means. But mm-hmm. Buana is also used to say to mean boss or master in a, let's say, a problematic relationship 
between mm-hmm. races. So this is why this character could be conceived of as racist, but we're not going to play him that way, but we are going to be very knowing about it. So, but the book doesn't really take itself too seriously. So it kind of, it's kind of slyly jokes about this, but itself is not very serious, except in the way that Africa should be portrayed. So I think that has to be very legit, whereas the adventures can be a little goofy. Buena Beast is essentially played like he's on, you know, Brave and the Bold, the cartoon. Use Buena Beast in that way. Well, that's how I want him to be played. Uh, The important thing is that he has access to a huge menagerie of animals to create the weirdest possible and most fun animal hybrids. So maybe this is pitched a touch younger in terms of being bright and fun and not too violent as well as being educational about a continent and countries people know far too little about, and zoology, of course, which is maybe a hook, more of a hook for kids. Interesting. I like that. You handle that very deftly. I was I was nervous on how to do it myself. I, I considered the Buona Beast from Brave and the Bold. I also considered sort of the Animal Man version from... Freedom Beast? Uh, well, no, no. Uh, that's actually more okay. where I'm going. But the, in the DC shorts, the DC Nation shorts, where he'd be like, Animal Man! <laughs> and he was so ridiculous and weird. Sort of the Buona Beast to him had some similarities and that just being hard to relate to. I thought about going that route. Then I decided to go a, a, a different way. So this is, you could say this is reimagining. Or uh, it could simply just be someone new taking over the mantle. And I also like your idea of the fun aspect. The book should be fun. And in my case, the fun's going to come from his powers. Not like you said, that's not making fun of Africa or any of that. It's just coming from the goofiness of his powers. So um, I do feel you need to rename the character. So I was going to go with either Freedom Beast, like was an animal man, or, or any other name. doesn't really matter, but you, you got to lose Buona. You just got to. Um, maybe even a new costume because it looks a little ridiculous. But my idea is it's an African-American guy. And he is now living in Africa. So, but he was born here in the United States. So some of his awkwardness is coming from having to adapt to the African culture because he's just not used to it. So uh, he, and he's a guy, he's saving, he's fighting. It's very environmental, animal friendly, environmentally focused. He's fighting to save the planet. He's fighting for equality. In my mind, I'm sort of thinking like the early animal man issues that Morrison wrote before it became really meta. You know, the first. I don't know, 16 issues or so, were kind of fun, lighthearted to some extent. I think that, again, the fun situations, the humor is going to come from the ridiculous situations he finds himself in, in a lot of ways because of his powers. There's going to be some lighthearted moments. I mean, the ability to fuse two animals into one is rife with hilarity. You know, uh, you, you combine a hornet with a zebra. What? You know, or something. It's something crazy and weird. And also the telepathic control of the animals. I like the idea of the animals just not taking him seriously and letting him know. <laughs> That they don't take him seriously, that kind of stuff. So I think you need a writer with a comedic touch, but someone who can also make you really care about the characters and also make you take an issue seriously when they're there to confront, I don't know, whether it's the remnants of apartheid you know, that are still left over hanging over their heads or, or whatever the issues are, drought, famine, all that. So you still have to focus on those issues, but then you can laugh at the ridiculous animals, whatever. And, and the name that came to mind for me was Peter David. Because he can handle comedy and seriousness both quite well. He can make you cry and laugh in the same comic. So uh, that, that's a route I went. Okay. I think it's legitimate. I I, uh, I went back and forth on keeping the name or even the, the race of the character. Or, I realize it's a problem. And I think, it, you know, just translate it to Beastmaster. That's a perfectly good name. There you yeah. go. Yep. We kept the team to the before last. My request. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, sure. But if it makes more sense to your, your process or the way you describe your line of books. But the only hero team uh, in Who's Who number three is the Boy Commandos. So it's not exactly an easy one 
to adapt necessarily. So uh, how did you handle it? Okay, so this is a big time reimagining. I, I pay homage to the original, sort of, but uh, definitely reimagine. The name, you drop boy, the name becomes the Commandos, okay? And it's led by Black Lightning. He's the leader of the team. He's assembled a lot of the heroes from this book. You've got, uh, I'll rattle through the names and then I'll tell you why I picked all of them. So you've got Black Lightning, you've got Blue Beetle, you've got Black Orchid, Bronze Tiger, Buona Beast, and the surprise reveal the ending, Blockbuster is on the team as well. Okay. So he's going to have his own series. That's your bonus book. He is, yes. And and you and I are role players, and we have both probably designed teams in at some point similar fashions. I mean, you're, you're much more advanced. You've probably gone beyond my simplistic methods. But I tend to think of teams in role-playing styles or 1980s comic books. And I say, okay, I have to have a balanced team. So in this case, I've got... Black Lightning, he's my energy guy. I've got Blue Beetle, he's my tech gadget guy. I've got Black Orchid, she's my you know elemental or magic person. I've got Blockbuster, he's my tank. I've got Bronze Tiger, who's my fighter, and I've got Buona Beast, who's with animals, right? So that from a power set, I, I sort of played it out like you know, Mutants and Masterminds is really good about giving you templates like this. Then I said, okay, now let's look at the personalities. I got to have a balanced personality. So I've got Black Lightning, he's the leader, he's the big hero, he's the Superman, the Paragon, whatever. You've got Blue Beetle, who's the guy who's always got the funny quip. Black Orchid, she's the mysterious and sexy one. You've got Blockbuster. He's, you'll find out more soon, but he's the jerk in the group. He's the guy gardener of the group. You've got Bronze Tiger, who's hardcore and savage, the Wolverine of the book. And you've got Buona Beast, who's the environmentalist. So the, the, what happens here is Black Lightning quits the Justice League, and he wants to help everyday people, not just going and beating the Galaxy Smashers. You know, it's a lot, there's a lot of echoes to Batman and the Outsiders there. And I thought, okay, I need somebody who can write a very eclectic team of heroes. And so I, I'm going to Jeff Parker. Because, you know, he, he can write Agents of Atlas, which was taking us whole very different types of characters and throwing them together and make it work. And then I said, all right, you know what? Forget it. If, if we're going to use Jeff Parker, let's just reunite the whole Future Quest team. You put Doc Shaner on the book. And I know everyone who ever does a Who's uh, editing episode is going to talk about Doc Shaner because he's just perfect yeah. at everything. <laughs> everyone he looks is amazing. So now here's where the Boy Commandos part comes in. You ready? So each issue in the back you get like two or three pages, a backup story called Boy Commandos. And this is in very much the comic strip fashion. And uh, this features the in very kiddie sort of, you know, Calvin and Hobbes or Peanuts kind of style. This features the lead characters as little kids. And the boys have formed a He-Man Woman Haters Club to keep out the girls, which is sort of also a nod to this issue, not having many girls. And so each adventure, though, Black Orchid is trying to get in the team. And then by the end, she proves that she's smarter and more capable than all the boys. Each story ends with her outsmarting them. And you get an artist like uh, either Yale Stewart, who draws the adorable JL8. I don't know if you've ever read this online. It's about the, the Justice League when they're eight years old in school together. It is freaking adorable. It's not a DC licensed thing. you got to read it online. Okay. JL and the number eight. Or Bill Walco, who does hero business. Both of them have a really great comic strippy style. So that's my commandos. Yeah, there's a little Gotham as well. I, I, like I'm imagining yeah, yeah. those kinds of uh, – I you know what? I'd buy that comic. Those three pages <laughs> extended to longer. That's I'd read that. Uh, <laughs> I went another direction. I haven't been shy about introducing more diversity into the line. One way to do that, yes, is to drop the word boy from the title. Yeah. I, I call it Young Commandos. Mm, okay. So compromise. And of course, it doesn't take place in World War II. And since it's the only hero team in the whole book, I'm going to make it a superhero team like you. But I'm converting the IPs of many villains in this issue into young, low-level supers who have been ah. recruited by the government to go on black ops missions all over the world as a correction for the troublemaking Brotherhood. 
in my version of the DCU, the Brotherhood is a kind of an analog for ISIS or for Hydra, for the Illuminati, all all rolled up into one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're destabilizing nations. They're they're propping up dictators. They're secretly creating wars. Eventually, they want to rule that new order. And the commandos themselves, I'm only keeping Brooklyn from the original roster. But I'm uh, acting on the sometime revelation that he grew up to be Dan Turpin. So, oh, so Turpin is sort of their drill sergeant and trainer. But but there there'll be a cast. Uh, like there's be a counselor and there's a tutor because these kids are doing this to pay for college. And when they leave the team, it's hopefully to go and have a fruitful life, not not leaving in a body bag, though I think both possibilities should seem in reach. So hmm. there's tension there. Members would include the acrobatic spider, okay. tech whizzes, bug and bite, a shape-shifting girl called Biff, mm. scuba expert Manta. So I'm removing the word black or, you know, it's like, it's like to make it yeah. sound like they don't all have that name. And there's a bandit uh, who controls bug-like drones and a charismatic kid who enhances the team's loyalty and teamwork called Blood Brother. So like a heroic take on Brother Blood. Oh, uh, okay. You, 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 I am going to dock you a few points for not using a Bug-Eyed Bandit as a full name because that there's nothing wrong with that. Well, maybe that's, <laughs> you know, this, this like the, that full name might be what, Sometimes they call each other like like a nickname or uh, an insult. There you, go. you know, he's running drones, so it's a little bit like what the modern military is doing. Obviously, this would be an evolving cast. I want it to be Suicide Squad, but when you leave, it's because you're done your tour. You know, it's like I, I want it to be a little a little more uplifting. Well, like the GI Bill. I mean, you yeah, know, you go exactly. in the service and they pay for college. Exactly. Yeah. So now, time for the bonus book. Well, I already know yours is Blockbuster, but I, I... I'm assuming yours is Brotherhood? Am I wrong? No, Brotherhood is just like oh. that like that big villain out there. Okay. Okay, here's what I did. <laughs> well, you took a deep breath. That can't be good. Well, I put a lot of villains in Young Commandos, and I made the Brotherhood of Evil kind of world enemy. So what's left? <laughs> okay. What haven't I used in this issue? Because I really wanted to have a 16 series, I've picked up on the name Blackrock. Like in this series, Blackrock is the name of a small town, and it's a town that's been cut off from the rest of the United States since the 1950s by a masked supervillain who tried to take over the town's televisions and hypnotize the town folk. It backfired. Now he's trapped in there. Sometimes you catch sight of him. The people of Blackrock, I guess, are conditioned not to notice the technology and fashions and mores have been more or less static for generations. They don't want to leave, and they don't question that no one comes to visit. And sometimes they catch sight of a ghost on TV, you know, just in the static after the national anthem. You know, it's, it's like, oh, Jeez. there's something in there. This is like Twin Peaks or X-Files, man. This is creepy. Now something's happening. You know, the series has to be about something. So now something's happening. The villain, who might also be called Blackrock, I don't know, is trying to get out. And his attempts are only projecting 50s television programming into reality. So the series follows a group of kids, or big TV fans, dealing with uh, B-movie monsters and UFOs. Uh, suddenly, it seems like they've been thrown back to the Old West. Uh, they get caught up in Twilight Zone plots. Uh, and generally, they're trying to, to stuff the genie back into the bottle. And then what happens when we decide we're done with the 50s nostalgia and Blackrock has to enter the modern era kicking and screaming? You know, this town suddenly pops up and the world has changed and not for the better, I guess. So that I'm calling it Blackrock. 
It is a weird, eerie Indiana, <laughs> Twin Peaks. Uh, yeah, that's right. a good touchstone. A town where things are weird, you know? So are we talking sort of House of Secrets level or like uh, Vertigo level? I don't think it's Vertigo. I think it's... Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think because it is about a group of kids I and, and like 50s kind of horror... I think it's general readership. Okay. Very interesting idea. I almost did something with Blockbuster, I gotta admit. So Blockbuster was on my short list for this bonus book. What's your Blockbuster like? Well, following a, a pattern of, of almost all of my uh, stuff, I didn't reimagine. Again, I, I worked with what's there. So I would say I've got a splash of retcon maybe in here and a new direction. So what was in the original Who's Who was the first blockbuster, you know, Mark. And then his brother, Roland, if, after this becomes the new blockbuster. And that's where I focus was the brother Roland. And in the comics that published, not my world, but in the comics, Roland goes on to become the, the new blockbuster. And, and he's pretty much like the first version until uh, Underworld Unleashed when he makes that deal with Neuron, right? And he becomes the big brain version and, he, and he's in the Nightwing book and all that. All right. So where I pick up is after he becomes blockbuster in the Starman series, but before Underworld Unleashed. So I'm using very similar to this blockbuster. He's the big hulking kind of guy, except, uh, you know, Roland was a jerk. He was a sleazy criminal. He's got, so it's basically like a sleazy criminal with a Hulk body personality. So that's where I pick up. And in my book, he ends up being a anti-hero and uh, he's the protagonist. But he lacks idealism or morality. Anyway, he's a bad person, but he's the hero. He's the protagonist of the book, and he ends up being a superhero against his better wishes. He, he becomes uh, – what happens is he gets out of jail, and to, to make some money, he becomes an action movie star. Because, I mean, come on. The guy's name is Blockbuster. you, you got to do something yeah, with that, right? Yeah. So he, and, and I've already got Blue Devils as a stuntman, so it just seems like a perfect fit. So he goes off to Hollywood. You know, think sort of Wonder Man turned, you know, Wonder Man was a villain who turned a hero, becomes Hollywood glory hound, super strong. I mean, there's a lot of parallels here. Anyway, he, he goes on to, uh, he gets paroled. He starts working as a stuntman for movies and completely by accident, he ends up saving the day from a disaster. And he is hailed as a hero. The papers are like, oh my gosh, he's such a hero. He doesn't want anything to do with this. He's like, what? But the fellow Hollywood types, Blue Devil, Animal Man, and Trickster, they all convince him, hey, you know what? Stay on the path of the good guys, man. This is better for you. So he says, you know what? All right, I don't really believe, to himself, he says, I don't really believe in being a good guy, but it does sort of suit his interests in fame and fortune. And he loves the spotlight, you know, a little bit like Booster Gold, but a lot less uh, morally upstanding. Mm -hmm. So, he ends up staying on the side of right, but only so he can get rich and be popular and get girls and all this stuff. So as the series goes along, he does end up finding himself caring for some people, you know, in his supporting cast, you know, whether his neighbors or his teammates on the commandos or whatever. I don't know yet specifically, but and, and while he doesn't really want to be a good guy, he keeps finding himself in positions of helping people. And I thought, OK, so I need a writer who can write bad guys who are morally bankrupt, and yet they're still the, the protagonist. And so I thought, okay, um, Gail Simone, I know you love her. Obviously. Gail Simone did a great job with Secret Six. You know, Peter David wrote a recent um, Ben Riley series where Ben Riley was a bad dude, and yet he was still found himself helping people. So I would tap like a Gail Simone or a Peter David. And then Art, you know what? I just love that old Starman book where Blockbuster showed up, the Roger Stern one. So I'd go to Tom Lyle. I know he's not with us anymore, but I don't care. I'd go to Tom Lyle and Scott Hanna or maybe even Jeff Johnson who drew the uh, that 90s Wonder Man series that I like. I love the look of that series. So that's where I was going, a real jerk who ends up kind of helping people against his own wishes. Yeah. 
Now, notice, by the way, Blue Devil was not in my commandos team because he's too popular oh, okay. to be on that team. He would dominate the team too much. So I do want to rattle off before we wrap up. I have this list of I – I started off by just writing down writers and artists I wanted to work with is kind of where I started. I used all the writers, uh, but there were artists I didn't get to. I just got to rattle off a bunch of these. Just It's it's like reading a phone book. I'm sorry, folks. But I, people I wanted to use I couldn't find a homes for was Lee Weeks, David Masticelli, Chris Samney, uh, Paolo Rivera, Kerry Nord. Yeah, all. All those are Daredevil artists, by the way. Sorry. Tom Grummet, Bart Sears, Kevin McGuire, Mark Bagley, Lee Sullivan. There's a Doctor Who reference for you. Uh, George Perez, Jerry Ordway, Walt Simonson, John Byrne, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, praise be, be his name. name. Art Adams. These are all people I wanted to find a place for, and I didn't. But, man, I'd, I would populate my universe with these. Well, maybe you can return to the show at some point and give them jobs. I would be ha- – th- you know, I was, I was nervous about this going in. I really didn't know how much I would have to say. And I found the more we did this uh, and, and planned for it, and again, I had two months to get ready. I love this. This was an amazing thought experiment. It was so much fun. And I, as I said, I'm really invested in some of these books. I really want some of these books to happen now. Let's name two of them. All right. Let's play What's Your Favorite from the other guy's lineup. I'll start. I'll throw you All some right. flowers. You totally sold me on your Bouncing Boy series. I thought I might get you with that yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, it's Legion characters. So y- yep. you, you got me there. It's also playing with the, you know, like the, like the, the original Legion, Paul Levitt's Legion, didn't actually do this with Duo Damsel or with Luornu, whatever, you know, identity she had. But the reboot did play with the idea that that characterization where the, uh, the sisters have different personalities and mm-hmm. don't, don't necessarily play fair with one another. So in, in this case, you gave it a reason to be. They broke up the band, and yep. uh, now there is a controlling element in their dynamic that doesn't exist anymore. And so the two extreme sisters are kind of at odds, and it's having an effect on her personal life, on her relationship with her husband, with her work at the school. I like that school environment. I can imagine, you know, I can imagine so many stories set around that, and you've got like a good cast of characters behind it that makes me think, well... This is kind of a team book in a way. You know, you've got like the Mm. the supporting cast is a a little team there. So it adds to that variety where it's really something that's missing for in our lines is team books. Yeah. Uh, You know, because of the the way who's who is structured. But that brings it back. That has that balance. So to me, that Bouncing Boy, uh, Duo Damsel series, you know, Legionnaires in Love. (laughs) Oh, that's the name of it. There you go. I didn't think about a name. That's it there. Legionnaires in Love. I like that. Something, you know, there's, there's something there. There's something to that, and I think hits my demographic particularly well as well. You know, it's like these are these are adult stories. We got so many young kids and superheroes playing to the teenage set. I think we need stuff for older readers that totally works for me. I'm glad you like it. Thank you so much. I appreciate the uh, the, the kind words. It, it's between uh, Legionnaires in Love, as you named, thank you, and Sister Power, Beauty and the Geek. Those are my two favorite that I did. And again, a lot of these are not stuff that I would expect that I would have done. I would have expected more Blue Devil and Blue Beetle kind of stuff. But uh, yours, I, I jotted down a lot of stuff here. And uh, I'll do it real quickly, just throw some quick accolades at you. I love your Black Lightning idea, the old man Black Lightning, old angry Black Lightning. I love that idea. Black Orchid as the super spy, that was the leader for a long time on my list of like, oh, I'm picking that one. But you got me towards the end. Uh, Block, I like the Easter Island idea, sort of the, the ambassador piece. The Bronze Tiger idea, I love the martial arts stuff you put in there. The Geek was super fun. Uh, I absolutely dug that one. But the one that you really got me on was Young Commandos. Oh. I like the idea of 
and maybe I put my own spin, I don't know, the, the military aspect of it. I like – there was a book called Avengers Initiative, which was about these young superheroes sure. training – uh, and it, it, it reminded me, not the villain side of that kind of book, but just reminded me of that sort of idea. Like they're, they're training for a mil- – they're superheroes training for a military purpose, but they're young teens. And they're – and like you said, I love the idea that they're going for the GI Bill. That The, the goal – you know, I'm training to be, I don't know, Superboy, but that's not who I'm going to end up being. I'm going to be an electrical engineer because I'm going to go to college and that's going to be my job. But right now I'm doing this, and I love that idea. So it uh, I, that really spoke to me. Your dream might even be – to become like a full-time professional superhero, there are skills you need to learn. And, you mm-hmm. know, it's like to win that internship, <laughs> to be like Blue Devil's uh, sidekick. Right. <laughs> you know, so you need to go up in the ranks sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, okay, well, I'm glad you liked it. I mean, I hope you had fun. Oh, this was a blast. I hope the people at home had fun. Dear listeners, it's time for you to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? Uh, if you were in charge, what series would you offer? And I, you know, it's worth it to go to the, the these shows feedback sections because people dump a whole lot of crazy, even crazier ideas than ours, even more brilliant <laughs> ideas every time. So uh, I w- always look forward to seeing what people thought, uh, you know, what they would do with the series. So uh, thanks for trying the experiment, Shag. And I think, I mean, there are 26 issues in the original Who's Who, so... I'm sure you can come back. I would love to. And I can't wait to read in the comments everyone's ideas for Blue Devil and the Blue Devils. (laughs) (laughs) That series specifically. Uh, So until next time, who's editing? We We are. What would Ditko like? Like like a character who bounces around like Spider-Man. And let's do everything that was great about Marvel. Let's take a character and trap him in a costume the way Ben Grimm was trapped. Let's do armor like Iron Man. Let's some magic like Doctor Strange. What are we going to call him? Well, Green Goblin was cool. Let's call him Blue Devil.